Hello, Horror Fanatics! I'm Frank. And I'm Jen. And we welcome you to our weekly podcast. Oh, oh the, the horror. horror. Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to our email address at oth at seriouslydecent.com. And you can check our podcast, social links, all that jazz at ohthehorrorpodcast.com. You sure can. Our web address. We're on the interwebs. We are. Yeah. Shh, don't tell anybody. It's a secret. I won't. However, what's not a secret is I'm a little flemmy. Well, we did I ice mean, cream. We did have ice cream, so yeah. that's on us. Yeah, it is. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be seamless. No one will know. Well, you just announced it to everybody. Well, yeah. So, I mean. True. Not the Best laid plans. Well, hopefully my reliable tea here. See, I got the thing in my throat. You know when you get that thing in your throat and you sound all... It sound all weird. All weird and you try to ride it out as long as you can. Play it off like it's natural and normal. Yeah. No, I, I do this. I do this now. This will be my voice for an hour. No. No, that would not be That's cool. not happening. That would be bad. How, however, you got a, you got a little mudget on your face. And that's our segue to Mr. H.H. Holmes, Herman Mudgett himself. Mm. You're thrilled about this. You know, you came in just like you know, guns blazing. I, Let's do H.H. Holmes. It's going to be great. Uh, I... <laughs> um, all right. So... My my source for this is the book H. H. Holmes: The True Story of the White City Devil by Adam Selzer. And with all due respect to Adam, fuck you, dude. Because um, my takeaway <laughs> is there is no true story. Well, that's the disclaimer we have to toss out. Yeah, I, my source. Uh, I've floated around the internet, but I've had some. Pretty good exposure to this topic before this. Well, I mean, I and, thought I knew about this yeah. topic going into this, and I'm going to be honest. Um, I'm more than a little pissed because I feel like we've been sold a bill of goods, mm. and it's like we paid for the fancy giraffe and we got the wish giraffe. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. Because... See, I, I look at it as a different deal. This is a story, before we even get into it, my source, some brief internet stuff, but mostly I circled around knowledge I have of my own and Holmes, a serial killer, in his own words. This was his memoir. And this was through what's called Parnellus Media Presents. Big fat and, liar with his face. And... The Parnellus Media, I'm not a fan of. Okay. I was well, right on the introduction. I was right on the introduction, and, and basically the publisher of the uh -huh. book, not the author, the publisher uh -huh. of said book in my hand, yeah. started throwing his politics all over in the introduction. That just drives <laughs> me nuts right there. It's like, no, we're doing an H.H. H. Holmes book 
I don't care about your politics. So, so, however, credit where credit is due, Matt Lake, who was the author who composed this book up, uh-huh. he did it on a bet with his publisher because uh-huh. the publisher didn't even want to do this. Right. Matt Lake wanted to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And I agree. If you're going to read Holmes, a serial killer in his own words, the, the memoir, mm-hmm. the big disclaimer is he's a liar. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. a massive liar. Huge liar with his And face. that's where I'm getting it with you. It's you wanted to find truth in this. And there's no truth here. Yeah, that's true. He's um, a liar. He's a just total compulsive liar. The other thing that frustrated the hell out of me reading this book is... The words? No. Whoever proofread this or edited it mm-hmm. did a super shitty job. Yeah, that's a problem with a lot of books. And I was like, what exactly are you trying to say? Yeah, especially now. It's, it's like tough. you had to make a lot of inferences. Mm-hmm. Did but you for, infer correctly? For those that are not familiar with H.H. H. Holmes, he's he's a just massive scammer, massive liar. And like I said, the memoir that he wrote. And here's the thing, like with memoirs, none of them are true. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, here's my version of everything that went happen. It's basically like I was telling you earlier today, a memoir. I, I was so happy I thought of it. No bragging or anything, but a Isn't memoir. exactly what you're doing right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm okay. bragging. <laughs> a memoir is just basically a long resume. Yeah. And you don't put your shitty shit in the resume. No, you put you your best You don't put your flaws. Stuff. You're like, yeah. yeah, you know, this is kind of true. This is partially true. This isn't true, but I'm going to work on that in the future. Yeah. You know, it's. I put Herman Mudgett was a pathological liar, a subpar con man, and a murderer. Yeah. I I really base him around con man and pathological liar. Oh, yeah. That was his two uh-huh. kind of fallbacks. Yeah. Not even fallbacks. That's what he powered through yeah. with everything. And the mm-hmm. tough part is, is as the news started getting into his story, oh once they God. ran out of facts, they they just started making shit well, up, Well, here's too. the thing. It's not even just ran out of facts. They are, there were times where they had an interview where they were quoting what the person said, mm-hmm. and then the person would say, one, we never sat down and had an interview, and two... None of that is anything remotely close to what I said to you in passing. You see, the beauty of that is, is that's exactly what happens today. Oh, it's so, 100%. So my thing is, it's 2021. Yeah. You, as an investigative reporter, mm-hmm. are any better than they were in no. 1894? No, because this is what everybody has to realize. The end goal at the end of the day is selling sell the, the print. papers, man. It's selling the print. That's God. And that hasn't changed since the late 1800s no. to 2021. No. They got to sell the print. They got to sell the story. Mm-hmm. It's like his memoir. Mm-hmm. He wrote this to drum up some money, but also yeah. try to save his ass is literally what the memoir mm-hmm. was. Because now, I, you know, we'll get to that whole point, but. You want to kick this off? His his early uh, his early days. Yeah, it's gonna be great. It sure is. So Herman W. Mudgett, which I'm sorry, 
But I just have like this sinking feeling that it all started there. With the name? Like if he had been born Herman W. Smith, I don't think we'd be having this discussion now. <laughs> but he was born to Levi Mudgett, a house painter turned postmaster, because those are things that you do. Mm-hmm. And Theodate, really? Mm. Mudgett, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire in 1861. No month, no day. Did you find a month or day? May 16th. Okay. Yep. He was remembered as fairly agreeable, a good student, and totally unremarkable as a child. Yeah. He was well-liked and remembered as a well-behaved lad. A constant mention throughout his life is his inability or unwillingness to look someone in the eye. This is because his left eye was affected by strabismus, which is commonly referred to as cross-eyed or wall-eyed. So, there was speculation in the book that because of this, quote-unquote, deformity, he had to adapt some super people skills to overcome... Their prejudices in order to just be taken even remotely Mm -hmm. seriously. No, I understand that. So when he was 14, Herman inherited a small piece of land after the death of his grandfather. And believing himself to be a man of means, he proposed to a young woman who was boarding at Ira Pennock's home. And Ira was a cobbler. Rumor has it she accepted his proposal, and when Ira learned of the affair, he sent the young girl back to New York. So by 16, he was working odd jobs in teaching when he met and fell in love with Clara A. Lovering Mm. of London, New Hampshire. Clara, by all accounts, was well-liked and respected. Herman and Clara were married on July 4th, 1878, before a justice of the peace, and they were both 17. They lived apart, however, as Herman was not able to make enough money to support the both of them. Mm. But he did walk nine miles every Sunday to see her, and then he would walk the nine miles back every Monday morning. He studied medicine in Gilmanton under Dr. White. After a year of apprenticeship, he spent a term studying medicine at Burlington, Vermont, where he was remembered as an ordinary student. He roomed at the home of Mrs. Thomas Brew, And Fred Ingalls was his roommate. Both men were former students of White. Herman told Fred that he was married and to please keep it a secret, and Fred agreed as long as Herman would conduct himself as a married man. This would prove to be difficult for him Uh his entire life. So when Herman began flirting with Mrs. Brew's daughter and rumors were abounding that they were going to become engaged, Fred blew the whistle on Herman's being married, which strained the relationship between the two men. I mean, shocker. Mm -hmm. So Herman had turned his room at the boarding house into a lab, and he stocked it with test tubes and unlabeled fluids that scared the bejesus out of Mrs. Brew because she was certain he was going to blow them up. So when he left, Mrs. Brew found a bottle of shingle nails weighing about three pounds that no one could understand their their purpose, why they were there. And he was also remembered as being extremely eager to dissect bodies. He even brought some work home with him, 
which Mrs. Brew would discover when she went into his room to sweep and there was a foul stench. With the broom, she found a dark object under his bed, which was later found to be a dead baby. So his first hustle was in Burlington, where to make money, he offered to teach shorthand. However, he didn't know shorthand. So his uh, shorthand classes didn't go so well. So he ran out of money after one term. He halted his studies to teach school at Lower Gilmanton. And the superintendent's son remembered Holmes as giving him his first and only whipping. He only taught that winter term as the review of his work was quote-unquote mixed. So his teaching career over, he went to Ann Arbor, Michigan to study at the University of Michigan in 1882, and he was accompanied by Clara and baby Robert. Married life didn't seem to be all that it was cracked up to be, and their marriage was on the rocks. However, Clara worked as a dressmaker and supported him through college. Clara left him the spring before he was to graduate, and she and Robert moved back home to New Hampshire. So while at college, Holmes listed Michigan as his home state to avoid paying out-of-state tuition, while also noting Dr. White as his preceptor, showing how little fact-checking was completed at the time. His boarding house was located next to a cemetery, though he denies claims that he was grave robbing as the state of Michigan provided all the tools required for dissection. They were supplied bodies bound for potter's fields or pauper's fields, and many states had such laws stating those bodies were to be provided to the medical schools. However, there were also many places that didn't provide them, so there was still very much a grave robbing business to be had so that you could procure specimens for well, and that's the places when, that weren't served by Yeah, and that's when medicine was starting to boom. And, yep. you know, everybody needed resources, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. And again, there's references to his being particularly interested in the dissections by his fellow students. Some noting he seemed to take a great deal of pleasure in the dissections. And they were performed with unnecessary gusto. So when was the last time you heard... <laughs> <laughs> well, and like his memoir, and again, this is where like somebody listening to this that would be a quote unquote H.H. H. Holmes fan might be listening and saying, this isn't true and that's not true. It's like, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. You could have 10 people yep. research this guy. Yeah. And you're going to have 10, 10 different, different stories. stories. Yep. In his memoir, he talks about when he's growing up, how he first got exposed to medicine was this doctor when he was walking to school. Yeah. And there was like a doctor's office there mm-hmm. and how he was scared of everything in there. Yeah. There and was another story where uh, they were playing around this doctor's house yeah. and somebody pushed him into the, ro- into the room and brought him face to face with a skeleton yeah. and scared the bejesus out of him. Yep. And there are some claims that that shock of that skeleton is what drove him to study medicine. Later he, in life. He claims that in his memoir. And again. Take it with a grain of salt. You have to. You yeah. really do. So a professor allowed him to take the body of an infant home to study during the spring vacation, which started the next day. So one of his classmates, the same classmate that was quoted as referencing his zeal and unnecessary gusto and gusto. dissections, yeah. asked him, 
you know, where he would be permitted to work without offending the neighbors, at which Holmes stated he'd find a place. Yeah. So Herman ended up sleeping in the home of Dr. Herdman for a time, and he was employed to hitch up the horses for the doctor's errands and stabling them afterward. He also dissected in the doctor's private dissection room and in preparation for the bodies received for the room. He was also in charge of the cloakroom, looking after students' clothing, and renting out drawers for their, their dissection tools and other supplies. It was also inferred that this Dr. Herdman was grave robbing mm-hmm. and selling the, the bodies yeah. on the side. But none of that, again, can be proven. No. All of this being said, he was a below-average student, and one professor actually voted against his graduation, but it was also commonly believed that the professors graduated him out of pity because he was so poor and... His last name was Mudgett. I mean, right? And it was while in college that he claimed to have come up with the idea to get a cadaver to defraud an insurance company, and he claimed to have come up with the idea with a fellow student from Canada named Robert Leacock, and he most likely chose this uh, classmate because he had passed away a couple of years post-graduation, so there was no way he could confirm or deny the claim. Yeah, yeah. So in 1884, he worked as a physician and school teacher in Moores Forks, New York, and this was the only time that he would practice as a physician. Yeah. He immediately started his lifelong habit of uh, blowing off his debts. And this would be the the only time that he worked as a physician, as I said. And he told everyone he was single and supposedly proposed marriage to a couple of women, one of whom was a primary school teacher named Minnie Everett, who was teaching him French. She, however, terminated the lessons as there was something about his character that she just did not like. And when a case of smallpox broke out, he procured a supply of vaccines and traveled the area claiming the Board of Health was requiring the vaccines and they would only cost 25 cents. Mm. So using the money that he got from his vaccine scam, he helped that helped him rent an office that he used as a laboratory where he was trying desperately to invent a patent medicine. He unsuccessfully didn't work out. No. No he gusto. Didn't. He didn't put as much gusto he into that as gusto he did into, into the that. dissections. That's too bad. So he left Moore's Forks owing bills to um, Hayes, swindled a train ticket to Chicago out of another guy named Steele. And on his way to Chicago, he was briefly employed at a hospital for the insane where he left after two months. And he, there are claims that his time spent at that hospital for the insane, like, haunted him. He could see those faces and, and those people Yeah. After, after the fact. So this was the first point where he attempted to use a dead body to defraud an insurance company, supposedly. This is when he concocted with a friend from school the idea that The friend would send his wife and child west, write a note claiming he had killed them in a drunken rage, dismember and pickle the bodies, then commit suicide. A fake corpse would be dressed in the friend's clothes, along with bodies dressed in the clothes of the wife and child. 
And the money would go to a quote unquote relative, the relative being Mudget. Mm-hmm. The friend would rejoin his wife and child and start a new life with his half of the insurance money. A doctor could procure one body easily, but three was going to be a challenge. So each party was responsible for supplying a body. So the bodies were supposedly placed in barrels and shipped to different cities. One was in Fidelity Storage in Chicago, and then one went to New York. And it was while on the train to New York that he read just how well insurance companies investigated such claims (laughs) and the scheme was abandoned. He would later use this scheme to account for the presence of bones in his building in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. He moved to Chicago in May of 1886. He found a pharmacy he wished to purchase because he was looking for for work. And when he made his quote-unquote offer to purchase, he learned he had to have a pharmacy license. So he went to Springfield to get one. He was listed as one of 22 candidates who had passed a three-day examination to become licensed pharmacists in the state. And he was listed as... Harry H. Holmes in this announcement, and that was the first time that he started to use what would become one of his many aliases. aliases. And it was about 1886 that he took up with a woman from Minneapolis named Murta Zulik Belknap. He had married Murta without ever divorcing his first wife, and even went so far as to swear out a petition for divorce, but nothing came of it, and the divorce was never finalized. So they were married under the alias of Holmes, and she kept the name even after learning that it was not his name. I mean, shocker. Yeah, yeah. Murder's father had stated they met in Minneapolis when he was working as a druggist and he was boarding at their home. Murda had apparently been engaged to another young man named Harry Graham, who also had boarded with her family. And when he left to visit relatives on the East Coast, He disappeared. There are claims that a letter came back saying that he was greatly injured. And then there was another that claimed like he just made off with whatever that means. Yeah. But I like how her parents used their home as a matchmaking tool for their daughter. Well, you know, Um, everybody's got their own approach. So. Holmes took to using the names of the people in his life for his cons. He placed the property of 603 to 605 63rd Street in Englewood under Murda's name. And then he later transferred the deed to her mother, Lucy T. Belknap. This would be the property where he would build his, what came to be known as the murder, murder castle after the 1930s. Prior to then, they called it Castle Holmes or Holmes Castle. Yeah. So he bought Holton's Drugstore at 63rd Street, which was across the street from where he would later build his castle, and he bought the pharmacy from E.S. Holton, which stood for Elizabeth Sarah Holton, and she was in her 20s when she sold him the business. It's believed she decided to sell when she became pregnant with her second child. And while it took her a while to get her money from, from him, she was actually able to get the money from him. However, Holmes's version of the story is that he bought the pharmacy from an elderly pharmacist who was ill and could no longer run the business, and his wife was only all too happy to sell the business to him. But by all accounts, he actually ended up, you know, paying this woman, and she and her husband 
you know, she was in her 20s. They were in their 20s. They lived out their lives and eventually died and were married in Oakwood uh, Cemetery many years later. Like, I think it was the 50s. So, good job. <laughs> Work began on the castle in early 1887. It was planned as a two-story affair, the first being for retail spaces and the second for residential apartments. The third floor, quote-unquote, hotel for the fair wouldn't be added for another five years. And included in the plans was a small room between the first and second floor at the back of the drugstore and a staircase between floors, which could be reached by a trap door in the second-story bathroom. These would later become called the secret or the hidden staircase and the hidden secret room. And honestly, that room off the back of the drugstore everyone who was interviewed about it said that's where the druggist went to take a nap or to sleep Mm. and that the staircase was simply just you know a quick way to get from a to z like nobody claimed any nefarious anything about it however holmes never paid the architect or anyone else involved in the built the building and when the first lawsuit was pending it was he told them they couldn't sue him because he didn't own the building his mother-in-law did but by all accounts that building went up very quickly because when the first legal summons was delivered to Holmes Murda and Lucy and the mother-in-law were all living above the drugstore so mm-hmm. on July 4th 1889 Murda gave birth to their daughter Lucy Theodate Holmes in Englewood Illinois. So one of his favorite activities was to buy goods on credit, sell them for cash, and never pay the original bill. And one of his most favorite was to rent a bike or two, yeah, then sell it rather than return it. He purchased a walk-in safe on credit, and when the company came to repossess it, he had actually like built it into the wall and he told them, yeah, sure, you can take it, but you can't damage the building. So the safe had to had to be left because they would have to knock down walls in yeah. order to get the safe. Yeah. So some of his other scams included um, mineral water, uh, gas generating, uh, glass blending, a copier company, and of course the World's Fair where he was going to have this hotel too. rent out to fairgoers. So the first suspicious death. A creditor named John de Bruyne died outside the drugstore on April 18, 1891. He literally stepped off a train at a train station, which happened to be right outside the building, and fell to the ground in front of the drugstore. He appeared to be convulsing, or what they called having a fit, at which point Holmes poured a dark liquid down his throat, and the dude died. So, Murda had a lifelong friend, uh, Kate Durkee, who Holmes would use her name on several deeds, yeah, uh, yeah. loans, promissory notes, and everyone, when shit was starting to go down, everyone kept saying that, you know, she was dead. Nobody even bothered to look for her. No, she was true. very much alive. Yeah. And my favorite was when they went to interview her. Or to do... Yeah, do the investigation. Well, just to, like, question her with regard to these. Her response to everything is, yeah, I'm not going to say. Yeah, I'm not going to say. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I I'm I'm I can't I can't say and they're like, "Well, why don't you why aren't you going to answer our questions?" She's like, "Yeah, I don't I, I don't want to." <laughs> well, and I mean it goes to show that she you know, he wasn't the only no. bad thing in this mix here. No. You know? No. But I mean, she was baller. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So, now we get into Julia Connor. She was also listed as a defendant in another of Holmes's suits, and this is in regard to a loan to purchase goods for the drugstore. So Julia and Holmes were having an affair. Julia was the wife of the guy who had bought the drugstore downstairs that Holmes had originally been operating when the building was built. Yeah. So it's rumored that Julia and Holmes started the the affair like right off and by the end of 1881 Julia and her daughter Pearl were both missing. Julia was working as a cashier at the time for Holmes and he was personally teaching her how to keep the books. She gave him a promissory note of $1,942 to become what was essentially part owner of the store. This was another one of his grifts where he would have his employees pay him for part ownership yeah. and said whatever. So both Murda and Julia were living in the property at the same time, which is what prompted Holmes to place a bell in the drugstore to alert him when Murda was coming so that he could stop flirting with Julia. Yeah, yeah. So Julia's sister-in-law, Ava Gertrude Connor, was visiting, and she was also being hit on by Holmes. So in the book, it was stating that Julia's husband had at one time the honor of having Holmes screwing his wife and attempting to screw his sister. (laughs) 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 She's And what an honor it was. Well, they were saying how much... Holmes must have hated him in order to to yeah. do that. Yeah, I'm going to say with a lot of gusto. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. So um, she stopped working for Holmes, and she returned to Iowa, and she died six weeks after returning home of heart disease, even though everybody tried to say that, you know, he had given her something, and he was the reason that she yeah, died. Yeah, yeah. Um, Christmas 1891 was the last day both Julia and her daughter, Pearl, were seen. That gets us to Emmeline Sagrand. She worked in the Englewood building for six months. She, too, was having an affair with someone, and there's as much information to claim that it was Holmes as there is information to claim that it was someone else. That's the total sum of all of these stories. Correct. That's what everybody has to keep in mind. It's, uh, there's, there's yeah. really no truth around. That, so, so at any rate, she mysteriously disappeared while under his employ and a cousin who had visited her in Chicago recognized the castle as where he had been visiting her. From there, she was moved from boarding house to boarding house and appeared to let Holmes dictate her life. And in December, 1892, was the last anyone had heard from her. There were notices sent saying she had married a Robert Phelps. And that they were heading to Europe. However, neither were ever located. Yeah. And there's little evidence that Robert even existed. Mm-hmm. So while 
Holmes const, uh, started the construction on a third floor to his castle that he would operate as a hotel for the fair. The work was done so poorly and it was only partially completed and there's no evidence that anyone was actually able to check into or stay at said hotel because it was in such a state of disrepair. On a lot of it was floor. mostly staff. Yeah. Staff lived there. I'll get into that on my yep. bit, but So Minnie Williams, she was an orphan who had tried to make her way as an actress. And upon learning she wasn't a very good actress, she started working as a stenographer for Holmes. And this is when she was thrown together with him. And her signature starts appearing on company documents in February of 1893. She was also listed as the owner of the home that Holmes was building for his wife, Murda and Lucy. Mm-hmm. Oh, she had an inheritance that was that she was drawing funds out of and giving to Holmes. So Holmes and Minnie lived together as Mr. and Mrs. Gordon, and her sister Nanny came to visit and both later disappeared. Uh, Holmes would later go to Texas to claim her inheritance there and also claimed her brother's insurance money when he died from a smelting accident. And it's inferred that either he or um, Mr. Who's the dude he killed? Peitzel? Peitzel. Went and did the guy or in. Peitzel. When he was uh, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Again, so, no evidence of it. No, you know. but that's what everybody's saying. I that's mean, what a lot of people say. Most saying. likely died as a result of the smelting accident in the first place. So the third floor of the hotel was damaged in a fire, likely started by Holmes in order to get the insurance money. A temporary roof was erected, but the third floor was never resurrected and by all accounts was inhabitable. That brings us to Georgiana Yoke. Wife number three. She too had an inheritance of about two grand, which would made her which would have made her way more attractive to homes. Essentially, if you were a chick and you had money, you had worth to him. Yeah. Yeah. So many commented that she had unusually large eyes, and were it not for said eyes, she would have been quite beautiful. And it was also rumored that because of their whole eye thing, that's how they bonded. You know, him being cross-eyed and her having they unusually had, large eyes. They had eyes for each other. They sure did. They only had I eyes for guess. you. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> so while they were together, he went to Texas to get Minnie's money. And he actually started building another castle in Texas, which he never completed. Yeah. He also stole a couple horses. And it was actually the horse theft charge that would be used to arrest him later on. Mm-hmm. So St. Louis. Holmes, posing as H.M. Howard, offered to purchase another drugstore for $850. They met with Merrill Drug Company reps to work out terms. So Howard agreed he would pay $50 cash, the rest on promissory note, and shares in the Campbell Yates Company. He asked them not to record the mortgage right away, as it may damage the good credit that he would need to outfit the store. So they didn't. Yeah. And the dude that he that got the 
<laughs> shares in the Campbell Yates company. Kept saying how he never got duped by Holmes and how he had 100 shares to this company or 120 shares. Mm-hmm. And they were worth 100 bucks a piece. And the company didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. So good job. Okay. So he started acquiring goods from Stickney Cigars, Hennessy Whiskey, and several other St. Louis merchants where they promised to pay them back. And in July, he and Peitzel uh, concocted this scheme where Peitzel went to Doherty and Crouch, a drugstore supplier, and Peitzel told them he had an offer to buy the drugstore at 14th and Market for $325, but that he lacked the money to buy it. If they loaned him the money, he could buy the drugstore, and he would use them exclusively as the supplier. So Doherty and Crouch took out a mortgage on the store as Merrill's mortgage was still unrecorded. So Peitzel and Holmes had cleared out everything of value and were getting ready to leave when a Merrill rep found the store shuttered. Holmes was arrested and taken to the station along with $500 of goods bought and billed to H.H. Holmes. And after years of being in Chicago, St. Louis had him imprisoned in less than a month. Yeah, yeah. So go St. Louis? (laughs) I mean, they didn't keep him there. Well, the if thing they is, had, though, I mean, our story would have stopped here. Yeah, during that time period, though, there wasn't any communication between departments. Like people say, oh, there's no communication between departments now. Yeah, it was way worse then. Yeah, there were no interwebs. No, no, and there was Pony Express. Some stuff made the news. <laughs> some yeah. stuff didn't. Yeah, uh, you know, there might. I don't even know when like a, a blotter started out. But, nah, but no basically, idea. you had to do something big to even hit the paper or something like that. You know, I mean, it well, just... boy, did he go big. Well, yeah. So he was released on bail until a bondsman was told he that Holmes couldn't be trusted yeah. and he probably shouldn't have put the money up for him. And he was arrested again at a train station mm-hmm. and put back in jail. Uh, he had been caught at the depot ready to de- to depart for Chicago. So upon promising to make good with Merrill, Holmes was released again, and he and Georgiana immediately left for New York and from there to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Enter Benjamin Peitzel. Poor Benji. So <laughs> Holmes killed Peitzel in his room on Callow Hill Street, and to do so, he used chloroform. Now... A skilled physician could administer chloroform in small doses where essentially, you know, you would be under or you would be out, but you you wouldn't be dead. Yes. So it's suspected that either Peitzel was drunk or that Holmes gave him enough liquor to get drunk, at which time he poured an ounce or two of liquid chloroform into his throat then, working his chest like a bellows, got the liquid into his stomach. He then arranged the body to look as though it had been an accident. He broke a bottle of benzene and, setting a pipe, burned a match to Peitzel's body, creating the impression that he had lit a pipe too close to a bottle of explosives. Mm-hmm. He singed Peitzel's skin and hair to indicate explosion was the cause of death. Found shortly thereafter by a patent holder, seller, who was very eager to make money off said patent, 
um, he found the body and conveniently located near this apartment was the coroner. So the coroner and another doctor went to the scene and murder was suspected immediately. When the coroner came to inspect the body, there was no irritation in the lining of the stomach, which was a clear indicator that the chloroform had been placed there after death. So the doctors concluded that chloroform poisoning was the cause of death. However, in a stroke of pure freaking luck, the jury brought a verdict of death by accidental explosion, even though the testimony given by the doctors refuted it. Mm -hmm. So he went and told the Peitzel family that they had completed the scheme. There was a dead body. Benji's off. You guys are all going to be reunited. But first, I need somebody to go and identify the body. And poor Alice was sent to identify the body. And in order to do so, they had to dig up the body that had been buried in the potter's field. And there was also an attorney there from the insurance company who was there to identify these identifying markers And Holmes said that Peitzel had a scar on his leg, Mm -hmm. that he had a wart on the back of his neck. Yeah. And I don't remember, and I didn't write down what the other thing was. And they took chunks of all of these things, like they found the the scar, Mm -hmm. they cut off the wart, and they... They had Alice come in to identify the body, and she was crying the whole time. She's a young girl. She's like 14. Yeah, yeah. And Holmes put a newspaper over her father's head so that she could just see the teeth, and and essentially she identified him by his teeth. Mm -hmm. And then the attorney's like, okay, it's good, works for me, and they got the insurance money. So... After the insurance money is given, Alice, Nellie, and Howard Peitzel are left to the care of Holmes. And I still don't understand how or why. Yeah, because my my bit of the story, this is where we got to rehash stuff because each story is different. Every single story is different on this account. Every single one. They were moved around the country at a dizzying pace. Mm -hmm. And at many points, the children were mere blocks away from their mother and other siblings. Howard was the first of the children dispatched by Holmes. Holmes rented a Union Avenue uh, cottage called Lancaster House. And I believe it was Indiana. And installed a large stove. He poisoned Howard, dismembered him, most likely in the barn, as that's where the horrible smells were coming from after the fact. And some of his body was buried. The rest was shoved in the wood stove with corn cobs, chunks of wood, all of which were doused with coal, oil, and set of fire. Alice and Nellie were killed in Toronto and buried in the basement of the home that they were in. It was a 4 by 10 essentially root cellar that he had dug a grave in. Mm-hmm. The occupants post the girls wouldn't use the basement because it smelled too badly. So they wouldn't even use it as a root cellar for yeah. fear that whatever they put in there would rot. So 
Holmes would be arrested in Boston after visiting his family, and it would be the horse theft charge that they used to hold him. And while in custody, it would be brought to light that Holmes had told an inmate in the St. Louis prison of his intent to defraud the insurance company and how exactly he intended to do it. It was debated several times if the body identified as Peitzel was indeed Peitzel or a cadaver used in his place. So... Frank Geyer, an inspector from Pennsylvania, he would go on to discover the girls' bodies in that's Toronto. My, yeah, that's my whole bit here. That's And the only re- he was ready to give up, and the only reason he found them was after a neighbor recognized the story. You know, he started paying attention to yeah, the see, papers. See, this is where it just gets all different. And, and... He, Holmes had borrowed and returned this dude's spade. So Alice was killed first, had a ribbon in her hair, and she was in the bottom. Otherwise, she was naked and face up, and her sister was killed next and placed on top of Alice, and her hair was covering her face. Their mother, Carrie, would identify both of their bodies. So once word got out of the bodies in Toronto, shit got crazy in Chicago. The police finally went to what the papers called Holmes Castle or Castle Holmes, which would as I said later, be called Murder murder Castle from the 1930s on, and found the hidden staircase, the hidden room, the vault, the fuel tanks. And in one of the stoves, they found Minnie's watch, which was identified by the jeweler in the building who had actually done work on the watch yeah. for her. And what was presumed to be bones. And another stove contained five fragments thought to be bones, but when tested, turned out to be fire, fire clay. They did, however, find the skeleton, find a skeleton buried in the basement, and it was believed to be pearl as the bones belonged to a child of no more than five or six. So after that, anyone who had ever been employed by him and was missing was suspected to be a victim of his. And while they were at it, if they had an unsolved murder, it was clearly committed by him. Well, and this is... I mean, this is where, again, it, it gets broad because you're dealing with a scammer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, how much do you have left? That's it. That's it? All right. I couldn't take any more. Well, no, because <laughs> here's your big, this was your big problem with this one. You wanted truth. I know. And here's the thing. And there I was telling any. you this earlier. There's no truth in any of these things no. we do. They're old stories. Yep. And what you're dealing with here, people don't really, I know people think they're in contact around liars. But yeah. not like this. No, no. I, I it's have, quite different when I you actually the, come across. Unfortunately, have been around a couple liars like this. I was only that around lie one. constantly. Mm-hmm. They everything is a lie. They devalue the truth. Right. They take all yes. the value out of yes. truth. And yes. once that's done, once the value out of truth is gone, right? It's it's truth is gone. It Correct. has no value. Yeah. Everything they so it's say. So skits yep. aside. Mm-hmm. This guy would lie about just. How, Everything. He would lie on what time he went to poop in a day. Yeah. Even though he had nothing to gain out of it. Yeah. He would just lie yeah. because it's just how he's built. Mm-hmm. So we normally spread out in different directions and we got things architected out on these types of yeah. stories. But I felt it would be good to have you do yours and I'd have no idea what you're doing. Right. And I'm going to do mine. And, and it's I an, have no idea what you're doing. And you doing. have no idea what I'm doing. But right. it's an example to show to everyone how screwy these stories line exactly. up. Exactly. 
Yes. And and that's where you can't blame Holmes the liar as much. It's also yes. the, the other... Everyone around other, him. Everyone around him because, again, the truth is devalued. Exactly. And so here's the everything thing. around it is going to be devalued. Even of, his quote-unquote wives. Oh, yeah. Because he was lying to them. Yeah. And they were living yep. a... I don't I don't want to say their truth, but mm. like they didn't know any different either. No, it's their version of the truth too and and I'll get I'll get into that at okay. the end, but basically, I mean he was a charismatic person, a business speculator. He yeah. was that type of person. Yeah. And he lived under basically an assumed name for over a decade. Oh. And he tricked yeah. his way into several fortunes by staying one step ahead of his creditors and the law. Yeah. So he would perceive himself as, you know, kind of the superstar and the media treated him that way since his arrest when yes. he had the arrest. Yes. Yep. And newspapers across the country, they covered every detail of his trial. And here's the problem. And it's like with everything else, when they ran out of facts, they just started printing all these whatever crazy rumors. Yep. yep. And, and again, it's just to keep the papers mm-hmm. flying out the door, keep, you know, bring in that money. In my opinion, no better than Holmes himself. Yeah. You know, so the the memoir, he, he cut a deal with Philadelphia publishers, Burke and uh, McFetridge, I think his name is, to publish his memoir in 1895, the year following his uh, arrest, basically. Okay. And newspapers have already begun to publish details of his crimes. And so his motive for the memoir was twofold. It was his just ambition Mm-hmm. to be in the limelight, mm-hmm. make some money. Mm-hmm. And basically his newest goal is to avoid the death penalty. Right. So this book that I got with this uh, Matt Lake, mm-hmm. who was the author around it. So what I liked about the book was they have the whole entire memoir there word for word. Right. Nothing's edited. It's right. just there. Right. And I like that because Honestly, if you want to read the memoir as a historical document, go for it. Right. It's a great read. If you want to read it to find truth or anything like that, you might as well wipe your ass with it because right. it's full yeah. of lies. Yeah. It's, it's because he's a liar. Mm-hmm. He published the, the memoir to tell his own side of the story. Holmes' own story is what it's called. Uh, he comes off looking like a con man trickster instead of a killer. Right. Yep. And he's open about his con, you know, confidence at methods and things like that oh yeah but the book is full of lies it's full of half truths he uses aliases as decoys and suspects in his more serious crimes mr edward hatch yep. was actually one of holmes's aliases yes and mr perry was a name used by ben Petzl. yep so whenever you read of miss uh minnie williams moving the narrative along holmes later admits he killed her long before the incident took place Mm-hmm. In the memoir. Mm-hmm. But then later, when he's about ready to die, he said he didn't. It's you know, weird because you can't trust anything this guy states, period. They were say there's a, a theory that Julia was killed in a botched abortion. And in one of his confessions, yeah, no, there's just tons of he them. did say she was getting 
a surgical procedure completed and she died. And then he tried to get rid of Pearl. Like he tried to give her to yeah. a guy that had other young kids and the guy said no. So mm-hmm. sorry, Pearl. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's, yeah. there's tons of stories. Like I said, you could have 10 people research this and they're all going to come up and with they're 10 all going to come up with 10 different plot lines, 10 different stories, yep. 10 different characters. Some of it weaves together and that's where, you know, their lies. Yeah. Because they have these little intersecting points. And that's why I was glad we did what we did here. Because I'm going to read my end. Okay. And we're going to see where the lines cross, but they're yep. going different ways. Yeah. So he started and refined basically this. Uh, well, actually, no. You, again, you can't trust anything he states, period. Mm-hmm. And lying wasn't the worst of his problems. The charges against him came out of the investigation. All of this started from an insurance scam. Yes. The, the collection of all of it. And, and it makes sense because a big insurance company would have the resources to investigate this as a larger. Yes. Bit. At so, one point, the Pinkertons were after him when he was moving oh yeah. the, the, the Pitzels around. Mm-hmm. But they just didn't have the resources right. that Fidelity Insurance Company, basically of Philadelphia, yeah. really gets the credit of getting him. Mm-hmm. So he'd been running... Basically, this uh, this scam many times over the years, he would take out insurance on a life of an accomplice, fake their death by substituting a cadaver, like you said. Mm-hmm. He would get the cadaver from a medical supplier and collect on the policy. I like this section because it, like, this route is through the insurance company. Mm-hmm. And I kind of fact-checked this a bit, and it's pretty pretty straight as it gets with him. Mm-hmm. He would launder the payouts through assumed names and shell companies, eventually getting the money back into his possession, basically just laundering. Yep. And he would split the earnings with his accomplice who would carry on under an assumed name, usually out in the West. Mm-hmm. So he started and refined the scam in his early beginnings in New England. He eventually faked uh, his own death and assumed the identity of H.H. H. Holmes relocating to Chicago. That's, mm-hmm. again, a different okay. spin on it. Yep. Insurance companies eventually catch on to these types of scams, mm-hmm. and Fidelity Insurance Company of Philadelphia received a multi-thousand dollar claim, and it raised red flags. Mm-hmm. It involved a policy taken out on the life of Holmes's longtime accomplice and friend, Benjamin Petzl, mm-hmm. who was staying at 1316 Collowell Street, north of Broad Street in Philadelphia. At the time of his death, Petzl's body was found... In the upper stories of the house, his clothes were burned onto his body. An empty bottle of uh, chloroform lay on a a table nearby with a length of hose running from it. Like you said. Mm -hmm. Fidelity Insurance found the circumstances suspicious, and they hired this investigator, Frank P. Geyer. Mm -hmm. And he he discovered a lot more worse than insurance fraud. So Holmes had been in town with Peitzel, and had been in regular contact with both him and Mrs. Peitzel the whole time. Mm-hmm. Holmes was tracked in Boston, where he was arrested, and remanded to Philadelphia, where he discovered that Mrs. Petzl was also in custody. Mm-hmm. This is when the questioning began. Holmes claimed that Petzl had been desperate and sloppily drunk for weeks prior to his death. While on a drunken binge, he had married a woman who had robbed him, leaving him with nothing to send back home to his wife and children. Yep. He had begged Holmes for help, but when he had, uh, but when help had not come fast enough, Petzl had taken his own life, and he was claiming it was a suicide. Yep. Holmes claimed he discovered the body in a room reeking of chloroform, and he basically attempted to conceal any evidence of suicide so that Fidelity Insurance would pay out to the widowed Mrs. Petzl and her children. 
Right. Because they wouldn't pay out for a suicide. Exactly. The investigator dug deeper into the story and found that after his partner's death, Holmes had been traveling the country with three of Petzl's children. Yep. The brief, they briefly stayed in Toronto. Holmes returned and the children were not with him. So foul play was naturally assumed. Mm-hmm. However, Holmes provided an alternate story, of course. Mm-hmm. And he claimed that the children were safe in the care of two of his former employees, Mr. Hatch. And Minnie. And Miss Minnie Williams. Yep. Correct. The next obvious question would be raised, why wouldn't Mr. Hatch or Miss Williams had the children over to their mother? Right. That'd be logical. Yeah. Holmes explained that she was unwilling to expose herself to the law. She had accidentally killed her sister while working for Holmes in Chicago. Yep. And had been on the run. So yeah, this is him. story was that. This is him she, spinning the wheels. and She got jealous of uh her sister giving attention or trying to get attention yeah. from home so but she it's just killed him her spinning the wheels and then he said to help he put her sister's body in a trunk and buried her or threw her into the lake yeah yeah so it was considered a plausible story but it seemed just a little too convenient yep and too unlikely to convince prosecution or public opinion yeah so the investigation started digging deeper, and this is where the it had uncovered the terrible evidence from Holmes's place of business in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So in Chicago, Holmes moved to Chicago, drawn to cities, uh, you know, the surging economy there. It was about to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of the world. Yep, the fair. This celebration would draw people from all over to the city. Holmes was planning to use his skills as a con man. Yep. And try to get in as much as possible. So here's the funny part with the pharmacy. Here's another kind of weird, and it's not even close. So he began set up in a pharmacy, and that's agreeable on a lot of different topics. However, there's also a statement that says that an elderly widow owned the store and signed it over to Holmes before retiring to the country. Holmes claimed this story. Yeah. So this is him even lying about this, which just doesn't even have... Anything to do with anything. Anything, yeah. And that's Holmes claiming that story. That was the one legitimate business that he actually bought. Well, And he lied about that, maybe too. Maybe not. <laughs> but he used this business to construct a block-length retail and hotel complex. It was a very impressive building, and that's the castle. Yep. Holmes designed the place himself, and he employed many people throughout the next few years. Most of the employees were young women that would work in the complex and stay in its hotel rooms. Correct. And again, giving it that appearance of being busy yep. as well. But many of them left shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that was def- a consistent fact all the way through yep. the whole thing. And months would pass after they left. And a lot of the things that I read, it said their families would hire investigators calling on homes saying that they had gone missing and they were looking for forwarding addresses. Mm-hmm. So this is like a separate yeah. thing that just organically happened. But the trail would end there. Right. He just wouldn't, you know, hey, I don't know. They're gone. Yeah. Nobody thought to cross-reference these cases until the investigator from Fidelity looked into the trail left by Mr. Hatch and Miss Williams. Yep. Miss Williams had been one of Holmes's employees and lived at the castle. Her sister lived at the castle, too, whose death put Miss Williams as a fugitive mm-hmm. in this whole bit of everything. Hatch left a uh, little evidence around Chicago, but not enough to pan out. The investigator correctly assumed that Hatch was another one of Holmes's aliases. Yes. And it became clear that Miss Williams was more than Holmes's employee. They were lovers who had secretly married. Yep. 
Holmes already had a wife and a child of uh, two of each, actually. Yeah. Yep. So Mrs. Clara Mudgett and her son Robert and Mrs. Murda Holmes and her baby Lucy were the other. Yeah, those were his know, quote unquote The wives. other wives. Mm-hmm. And what also surfaced was that Miss Williams' sister had signed over a substantial amount of money to Holmes. So did Miss Williams. And both of them disappeared shortly after. Yeah. So the investigation began to pry into the castle and Holmes designed the building and it was definitely different than usual businesses and residential things. And that's where people get nitpicky on like, was it a this type of room or that room? It's yeah. like other places just even today don't have that crap. Right. And there was a, uh, from the accounts that I read, there was a soundproofed and airtight room that they mentioned. The room was plumbed with gas pipes without a gas lamp. So it just had gas going mm-hmm. into it. The castle contained secret passageways, hidden rooms, blind shafts between the floors. The basement also contained a powerful incinerator. Mm-hmm. And that incinerator can contain some scorched but recognizable human remains. So Holmes's guilt for murder is starting to become evident. However, the investigator is focusing, uh, focusing his concern, this is the one with fidelity, with tracking down the whereabouts of the, the pizza children. Mm-hmm. The investigator followed the trail to Toronto and discovered three items of evidence. Holmes had a short-term house rental. Yep. And left evidence, this is a bit different from what you were saying, yep. that a trunk and a spade had been delivered there. Not borrowed, but delivered there. Yeah. The investigator supervised an excavation of the dirt cellar in the house and discovered the remains of the two girls mm-hmm. per, per years as well. Yep. The trunk had been gathered and was large enough to hold Petzl's daughters, and there was a hole wide enough to place a hose connected to a gas tap. Yeah, see, mine said there was no evidence of yeah. the trunk with the hose, and there's also stories that Alice was was um, missing her feet because she mm-hmm. wouldn't have fit in the trunk with them, but when she was found buried, she had her feet. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is... It's, it's so weird. It's it's There's nothing yeah. consistent across the board. No. The victims were then buried and the murder weapon was shipped into storage. Mm-hmm. The investigation identified the third child being killed before the trip to Canada, period. Right, yep. And I didn't have the... I didn't put the details down for that. I just browsed past that. But So Holmes, at this point, is convicted of murder and sentenced to death. And Holmes managed to get himself square into the public by selling his confession to the Philadelphia Inquirer for seventy five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and that's in the late eighteen hundreds. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. So this is basically it's like a ten thousand word confession, and it listed more than twenty victims, several of whom he couldn't even name. Mm-hmm. And this is per his own hand. Yeah. Holmes had one more surprise and delivered it in person. In the remaining minutes of his life, Holmes stands in front of the crowd that gathered to witness his hanging. And delivers his speech confessing to two accidental murders of women not mentioned in the trial. And then he recants his previous confession in his memoir, claiming he was innocent of all charges brought against him. So, you know, I mean, the problem with all this is you just can't trust his word at all. He's an asshat. So basically, you know, he killed anywhere legitimately. He killed anywhere from two to 23 people. Yeah. At the grand scheme of it all. Yeah. However, the opportunity for killing that the castle provided, I mean, he could have killed more than he admitted to. Right. I mean, this is just being honest here. Yeah. With everything that's in in front of us. He definitely lacked 
any kind of morals or remorse. Right. None of that was there. And he could have hired and housed hundreds of young women and suffocated many of them in the castle. Mm-hmm. It's entirely plausible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was a medical professional. Yep. He had access to poisons and he had contacts who would sell, uh, that could sell fresh cadavers for anatomical study. Mm-hmm. His first confession suggested that he disposed of some victims in that manner. Mm-hmm. And in his memoirs, he talks about that. He began to claim that the incinerator was built to test patents designed by his colleague and eventual victim that you brought up, mm-hmm. Ben Pitzel. Evidence did show that he had disposed of some bodies in that way. He also confessed to luring a wealthy man into the incinerator prior to burning him alive. This also evidence uh, that he rendered some victims into skeletons and hired craftsmen to basically articulate them for sale to medical schools to right, use for yeah. anatomy lessons. So he had access to all this mm-hmm. stuff. Some guy actually came forward, and there's a picture of him in my book, where when he came forward, he came forward with a red skull, which was supposed to be the skull of one of the victims. I don't remember which one. And, I mean, really? (laughs) Dude painted it red. Hey, And he apparently... The story was he got a skeleton. Well, no, it wasn't a skeleton. It was a partially decomposed body, and it was the upper torso. Mm-hmm. And the better. Half. So he cleaned up as one does, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And then he there. There was no clear reason why he didn't sell it or do what he was going to. You know do what he could with it and he ended up putting it in a box and they were saying he had the hull, the skull hanging from a tree in his yard mm-hmm. and then when the stuff all went down with Holmes he walks in with the skull yeah yeah okay well but even even like uh you know say you look at today of skeletons for anatomy right reasons and stuff that's all like a, a a polymer and like an epoxy yeah, no, they and don't stuff use like that. Bones anymore. But back then they had to use bones. You want to know why you know, I know this? Because I was I wanted to be the skeleton. Like I wanted to donate my body to science, yeah. and I wanted to be the skeleton in the classroom. <laughs> and turns out they don't buy those no, anymore. So no. I was like, <sighs> yeah, fine. No, and I mean that's where again it's just it's. It's a different time, man. It's a different time. But he had access to all this stuff, you know. And I mean, it's it's entirely plausible that he could have killed hundreds of people. It's entirely plausible. Yeah. It's also entirely plausible that he didn't kill anybody. Yeah. No, and that's that's the beauty of this story. See, that's where you're missing the beauty of this story. You want that factual statement at the end to go, there's the period. But I like the whole gray of it. I think yeah. the gray of it's great because the way he is, it's just fitting. Yeah. I mean, most of the murders he confessed to, mm-hmm. and subs- then he recanted, and 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 basically all the all the people that he was talking to, they all had some sort of profit motive. At so, the end of it, it, was profit motive. So his confession would lead someone to believe that he was remorseful and became hardened as he needed money to dro- drive him to theft and fraud. That's how the memoirs are set up. Right. You know you. You you really see how he talks, and you're just sitting there, and you could 
if you want to, you could slide into that whole thing where, eh, no, he's remorseful. You know, he, he had to become hardened. He needed money. And one thing led to another, you know, bada bing, bada boom, you know. Oh, no. And, you know, but he also confessed to trying to kill three women at once for no reason and failing the attempt. Openly admitted that. And this would have led to the idea, basically, that he is capable of doing this. Mm-hmm. That's what that says. So, but here's the thing. Is that the truth? Right. And it just you just start running in circles. And you want to hear how crazy this freaking story can get. Jack the Ripper. Yeah. The Jack the Ripper theory. You know, this is where if those haven't. the stupidest theory I've ever heard. If those who haven't heard of it, in short, and we're not going to get into it in depth, but basically he tra- they're saying he traveled over to... England, London, England or London, England. Yeah. And during that time when he was there, that was the Jack the Ripper killings. Mm-hmm. They do the doctor correlation, mm-hmm. the surgical stuff. Yeah. And then it all stopped after he left and got arrested. Mm-hmm. So he's in, that makes him Jack the Ripper. And that's what I'm saying. Like, that's the news you're dealing with then. Right. Yeah. And you're dealing with that today. People yeah. are just like, well, you know, he was there. I mean, it hasn't changed. It hasn't yeah. changed at all, unfortunately. But what's really cool... Did yours have any mention of when he was to be killed, he wanted his body cemented into yeah. the ground? Yeah. So so basically, when he passed... Well, not passed away, but... When they hung him? When they hung him, his coffin was filled uh, with basically, like, wood mm-hmm. at six feet. And then... Further down, he was in cement containing, you know, he wanted himself intact in the cement. Yep. And that was like 10 feet down. Mm-hmm. It was another additional four or five feet below the casket. But that's like, you'd think like any other story of any other killer, once they die and they're put in the ground, this story ends. Yeah, no, it didn't. And this him. guy just keeps going. Yeah. And that's where you kind of wonder how much of this is his own doing. Yeah. You know, does he have the foresight to be like, you know what, I, I want people fucking around with me for another hundred years. And I mean, honestly, we're all talking about it today. I mean, and if that was his goal, he succeeded. So the rumors spread like wildfire after his death. Yep. And many claimed, including newspapers, that he may have bribed, bribed the hangman to fake his death. Yep. The cement coffin, uh, you know, people thought that that could have been used to conceal a different body faking his own execution and just mm-hmm. escape somewhere. I mean, he made a lot of money selling his story and a lot of people right. wondered what happened to it. Again, it was $7,500 in the late 1800s. I mean, we were doing the La Lurie stuff. I mean, that's over a million dollars, right? Well, no, or no, it no, no. It'd, it'd be hundreds of thousands of dollars, but still a lot of money then. I mean, if you had yeah. hundreds of thousands there and you know, everything cost three pennies or a penny, you know, you're, you're, you're balling. So some suggested that Holmes was in South America actually, and living off the proceeds of his story. His own descendants actually held on to that account for more than a century. Wasn't it his son who was like, Hey, can we just put this all to rest? So in 2017, one of Holmes directs descendants, great grandson, yep. Jeff Mudgett petitioned the courts for permission to exhume the body and conduct DNA tests on the remains. And Jeff felt that this could kind of set the story to rest, yep. allow the family to move on from yep. this just crazy chapter in history. Mm-hmm. So the History Channel actually got 
involved in this. Captured footage for a documentary, and a team from the University of Pennsylvania proceeded to dig up the remains. And again, they found a coffin was filled with these like offcuts of wood at six feet. Mm-hmm. And then further down, they find cement containing an intact skeleton with traces of clothing, derby hat, and a mustache. Yep. A different source brings in extra news alongside of this. And this retired executive, uh, Larry Finelli, and his wife, Claire, found some books in a box from Claire's deceased aunt. A note written and signed by Holmes was in a family Bible in the box. The Bible belonged to one of the two priests who was present at Holmes's execution. And the note was dated May 7th, 1896, the day he was executed. Mm-hmm. The Bible belonged to a cousin of Claire's great-grandfather. And that cousin was Father Patrick J. Daly, a Catholic priest at the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, right next to the prison holding homes. He and Father uh, McPake were the two priests that met Holmes and accompanied him to the gallows. Mm -hmm. And they waited for him to make his final confession, prayed with him for a few minutes, and then he was hanged. The Bible was originally of interest to the family because it was only one of 30 printed for the use of priesthood. Mm-hmm. And that's what got it all started. They were just seeking to value what appeared to be a limited run Bible. Right. It was in poor condition, obviously, because he was probably just using this every day. And oh, yeah. just, you know, had the wear and tear of a, of a priest. Right. And had newspaper articles of the case tucked into it. Mm-hmm. So the Bible had Father... Uh, Daly's name in pencil and an inked inscription in different handwriting. And it was very similar to the many examples of Holmes's handwriting on public record. And it read, Dear Father Daly, I must write and make you know the kind of feelings I have for you. Then there were some illegible words that followed. They had no idea what that was. And it says, I know that you, by God's grace, have done much to save my soul from eternal damnation. I need your prayers after my death. With all my heart, H. H. Holmes, May seventh, eighteen ninety six. Crazy! I couldn't yeah. even imagine finding something like that. So, the summer of twenty seventeen, History Channel airs this uh, eight part series named American Ripper. Mm-hmm. It's the story of Holmes' descendant Jeff Mudgett tracing his ancestors' steps around right. the United States. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest; I haven't seen that. I haven't either. I'm gonna just be fully yeah. transparent and honest. I haven't seen it. And I'm definitely at some point going to watch it and we'll let you know what our thoughts are with it. Right. We can uh, do a follow-up. Yeah, we'll do a follow-up on this uh, this whole thing. So University of Pennsylvania found his body shorter than expected. Right. And they were attributing this to bone decay from tuberculosis and a century-long soaking of the bones within the cement. Mm-hmm. So the tuberculosis thing I don't really get because there wasn't a whole lot of stories of him having tuberculosis. No. But I'm not a medical professional. Maybe there's something there that I'm not understanding. So they compared caught it in in prison. prison. Yeah, I don't know. So they compared the teeth of the body. (laughs) 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 They compared the teeth of the body with photographs of dental casts and found similarities, including a lack of molars. Okay. And then the bone dust was taken from uh, within the skull and was shipped to a British university along with saliva from two generations right. of living mudgets yep. for DNA comparison. University of Pennsylvania team said that the DNA testing did not rule out a relationship. Right. 
did not rule out. Mm-hmm. The dental records were the most compelling reason for believing the body was Holmes, in their opinion. Got they it. were laying everything on the dental records. Mm-hmm. This leaves a giant question mark over the entire story because the great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, was not happy with these results. Right. He wanted to know and one began, way or another. He began this large campaign on like social media, I think, or something like that against uh, the University of Pennsylvania team and the DNA labs. His argument rests on a lack of uh, chain of custody for the dental records mm-hmm. and the lack of a definitive statement declaring a match based on DNA evidence. And this is what people have to understand with DNA evidence. Right. Forensic scientists are not known at all to give opinions about making definitive statements regarding DNA evidence. Right. This is something that people don't really They can only know. tell you based on what they've pulled whether whether they can rule someone in or rule someone out. And even then, it no, depends it's still, on the quality of the well, DNA. Well, and this is what I'm getting into in is the uses of samples and not entire genomes means that although it is an exact science, it is an exact science that hinges on statistics. Yes. And what people have to understand is you can make statistics tell you anything you want. Yeah. So everyone gets all googly-eyed over DNA. Yeah. It's not really what many think about. Right. It's, it's it's not, you know, there's these these kind of gotchas. Mm-hmm. And Mudja, at the end, also mentioned the difference in height. Right. There was nothing really slam dunk in this whole thing. Right. And it was all, again, forensic scientists will just say, well, you know, we're not going to give our opinions, but you know, we're just going to give this vague statement. They're fucking pros at that. Mm -hmm. Absolute pros. It's like weathermen. And at the end of all this, this is what really makes the story of H.H. Holmes so compelling. And this is what I was getting at you with it. It's just like you have two sides at the end of this, basically. Right. You have one that believes that he was hung and buried in Pennsylvania. Right. And then there's the other that believes he manufactured one of the most amazing cons of all time. And I mean, faked his death. Yeah, and faked his death. It's really a fitting legacy for this guy. It's truly a fitting legacy. I just don't know if he, if he could have effectively faked his death, though, because wherever he went, he would have had to, you know, he, yeah, he, he would have been left to his own devices. No, so but he it's could just have done whatever he. But wanted. the manipulation is there. Yeah, yeah, and that's his fitting legacy. Yeah. Is the fact that there's people a hundred over a hundred years later, yeah, still arguing whether this guy died that day or, or not. not, yeah, or did he do this crime or not? Right, like he's just pulling everybody along. We're all just oh, he's the puppet master, yeah. <laughs> but this again is a pathological liar. Exactly, this is a real just yeah. like textbook case of a pathological liar yes where you can't trust anything he says and back to the beginning of what i was saying where if you take all the value out of the truth then there's no truth around you no so anybody that tries to report on you or investigate you or do anything since you devalue the truth right there's no truth around you they there's no truth to be found. There's just none to be found. You can essentially create your own narrative. Yeah. Who's going to call you out on it? Because even if something is true, you could just say, no, no. Right. Or his wife would be like, yeah, no, he was in a different part of town. 
Yes. Even though they have no evidence of it. Right. None of it. They could yep. just say, yeah. So mm-hmm. that's where, like, these marriages, especially the first two that he was with, because, I mean, the third one didn't really work out too well. But. I don't know. He was with her, though. Well, yeah, no, no. I mean, time. yeah. The, and she stood the one by he had her an affair with. But, but what I'm, uh, that's what I'm saying is his date. They were either so soaked into it, they didn't see the reality, or they were the same. I think he found the same version of himself, and that's why he married these ones, because it's just like, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the very first wife, he may have had some affection for her, but Mm -hmm. she was a means to an end. She she paid for his... Oh, yeah. His... At the end of the day, if you had money, he was after you. He was into you, yeah. Yeah. And if you were a woman who had money, he was really into you. The one I don't get is Murda. Yeah. Because she didn't have money. Yeah. And not only was he with her, he had a daughter with her. He built her a house. Mm Mm-hmm. With no, and here's the thing. He could have genuinely, he could have genuinely <laughs> loved her. Maybe I don't know. And here's the, but the, here's the thing. With him. Georgiana just, believed he genuinely loved but her. But you're never gonna know. No. But what's compelling is, is how many people have fed off of this. And, yeah. And that's the thing is, is I mean, like all these cons are around to this day. Yeah. All yeah. these cons are. Yeah. Yep. I was talking about, you know, with you earlier. It's like. The Ponzi scheme with Bernie Madoff. Yes. And he got all them people hooked in. Yep. Because basically the difference between a con man and a very successful businessman is the successful businessman basically commits to what, like he provides what he was going to offer. Mm-hmm. Like if, if I were to tell you, I can make you five grand in two, you know, say a month, mm-hmm. I can get you five grand if you let me help you uh, invest your you know, money invest your money into marketing and I could help you with marketing and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And, and then basically if you do that five grand, then either you owe me a favor or you could help me out or you could pay me some money, but there's this exchange and you right. know what you're getting ahead of time and you're going to get it. The only difference between that successful business person and a con man is the con man won't get you what you need. Right. Or he'll get you just enough to, to, to keep you close yep. and to keep you keep you tugging, you know, towing the line. And that's exactly like I, I just it amazes me, like multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Bernie Madoff was a big example with the Ponzi scheme. And I mean, that's a pyramid scheme. Yeah. And and he got everybody. He got all these people that have a lot of money that yeah. made great decisions, considered smart. But if you want to hear what you really want to hear, you'll 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 create the lie for them. Right. That's a that's a very kind of big point there. You will create the lie for them. I don't even have to lie to you. You'll create that lie for right. me. And that's the that's the wheelhouse of a confidence person, mm-hmm. a con man. Is when you just start creating the lie for me and now I'm not even I don't have to lie to you. Right. You're you're doing it for me. Yeah. And these pyramid schemes now mm-hmm. with multi-level marketing and all that. I've watched a lot of people get into them and I just look, it's like, it's a pyramid scheme. 
Yeah. No, it's not a pyramid scheme. Yes, yes it, it is. is. And then you explain what it is and they're like, well, yeah, then that means everything's a pyramid scheme. You know, that's like the, com- you know, yeah. the common answer with it. And what you have to do is walk away from that person. They've been taken. Yeah. And that's where I got to laugh when people sit there and say, well, you know, that person should go to jail and prison and all that. And it's like, yeah, no, they should. But a good confidence man doesn't have to pry your money away. No, you, you know? give it to him. Yeah. It's the best. Not line only of, do you give it to him, you'll go out and actively recruit yeah. people to give him more money. And that's where it's hard to catch these people. Yeah. And that's where you hear these different stories with them because, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a web of lies and a bowl of lies and a, mm-hmm. and a grinder, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just lie after he lie after lie. He sits on a throne of lies. He does. He's Santa Claus. <laughs> He's bad Santa. <laughs> so, uh, so what do we got next? What's next week got us? Robert the doll. I'm so excited. <laughs> you know why? Because I know nothing of Robert the doll. Really? Nothing. Absolutely. I'm going into this 100% blind. I've heard of Robert the doll. I've heard about it all the time. But I've never taken, you know, I've just never had any kind of bandwidth at all to to look into it. So Okay. So what we should do for the next one yeah. is you should read the book. Yeah. And I'm just going to solely go off of what I know. Yeah. And we'll do a comparison. Okay. We could do that. See how much I really know. <laughs> so Put my money where my mouth is. Yeah. And this gives me the the beautiful challenge of becoming an expert in a week, which I just that's like my that's what gets me all all tingly inside. How much can I cram on a subject? That's somebody asked me. They were like, "So, what's it like having a podcast?" I said, "It's basically like doing a book report every week." Yeah. Or you're doing multiple book reports yeah. a week. You know, to, I'm like to the stay shittiest ahead. topics. That's not true. <laughs> no, you know what I mean. It's like having to read Wuthering Heights. Do your book report. Oh, okay. you mean those book reports. Yeah. 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 No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, like yeah. our book reports. Yeah. You know. I like this. Yeah. Yes. No, but that's what I was explaining. I was like, it's basically doing a book report or books reports, you know, and and you're doing many of them at, right. at a given clip. But it, yeah, it's it's topic research. Man, I wish I, I were an research. English teacher because I would make all of my students read the Encyclopedia of Demons and Demonology because <laughs> why should I suffer alone? You didn't <laughs> suffer in that. No. Oh my god. I bit, will admit. Bit of an exaggeration. It's a fantastic resource. It's an awesome resource. But, wow. Yeah. Hello darkness, my old friend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Robert the Doll next. Yep. I'm I'm very excited because I, like I said, I, I really don't know anything about it other than his name's Robert. He's a doll. Man. That's a, I know me some things. That's why I wanted that on the list. Like when you brought that up, I was like, yes, I want that on the list. Yeah. I wanted it earlier, but I got it. We had to slow roll into the whole witches, vampires, and, you know, Halloween and... We just kind of did our creep in, but now I'm doing these things that like this is a me thing. <laughs> it's a me topic. You know. So is Bigfoot next? <laughs> Bigfoot is definitely we gotta we gotta put Bigfoot in there somewhere. Oh, he's already on the list. We yeah. just have to figure out where he's gonna Because I can on the talk list. me some Bigfoot. Dude. Yeah. I know. Hey, Bigfoot's a great character. 
Just period. He really is. Just period. There's so many ways that that story has morphed over time. It's amazing. Like, seriously. I was really into Bigfoot as a little kid. And that's where it all. Yeah. Harry and the Hendersons? No, I mean, I didn't even, not even into that. Just like the idea that there is the, like this big, just like massive creature in the woods. Yeah. And, and that's where I really do understand that there's something genuinely wrong with me. Why? Because I loved being out in the woods as a kid and that idea of that didn't scare me at all. Now I will tell you this, if I was in the woods and I heard something like that, I think that'd be the one of the few times Did I'd be scared yourself? that I'd be scared. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a, a point in the woods, you know, cause most of the time when I walk through, uh, like up deep in the Adirondacks and whatnot, mm-hmm. you're, you're the apex predator in there. Right. You know, so there's really not much that you really need to be afraid of. Most of the stuff is squirrels. Bears? Most, well, even bears. Bears are genuinely afraid of you. They don't want anything to do it, even if they come up. I mean, I've seen a few. What about a mountain lion and him's murder well, mittens? Well, now I'm going into, this is the topic where I'm heading into, is, you know, because bears I've seen, they scamper off away. If you're in between, like, a mom and the cubs, you're in deep trouble. Right. Which, fortunately, I haven't been in that circumstance. But- even like wild dogs I've seen, like the koi dogs mm-hmm. and all that. We used to, they come up to the backyard at the old place we had. Oh, yeah. You know, those we don't bother We used to have me. to stop my school bus when I was a kid and yeah. wait for the packs of coyotes and koi dog mixes yeah. to get out of the way so that we could. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, well, why, why do we have to wait for them? <laughs> We're bigger than they you just are. Just mow them over. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, the horror. <laughs> but I remember walking in the woods one day and I was deep in. I was mm-hmm. doing like I was out there for a week, mm-hmm. just camping around wherever in the middle of fucking nowhere. Right. And there's a point where you do realize that because it's not even when you see like an animal or something like that. You realize when you're walking over some terrain and kind of you slip a little bit and you say to yourself, whoa, slow down. Yeah. Because you're like, if I get hurt out here. Nobody's fine. This me. is a fucking problem. Yeah. No, and I mean, I had methods. Uh, I always tell people, you know, like I'd always tell you, you know, I'm going here. This is what I plan to do. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But, you know, if you get hurt, like especially out there, especially bushwhacking and you're not on trailheads and all that yeah. stuff. If you have to get lifted out of there or carried out of there or drug out of there, you're it's days. Yeah. Or if they're going around the clock, like it's 24 hours before you even just make it to the road. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a real, like a, a like a, it's a, it's a crazy reality that you have in your head. Mm-hmm. And so one day I'm walking and I hear a little like twig snap. Behind you? Behind me. And I don't think anything of it. Because a lot of times when you're walking, like squirrels and chipmunks yeah. are just like scurry around. But that's pretty noisy. And I hear just like a little twig. And I wasn't thinking of much of it. And I stopped and I drank some water. I'm sitting on like a, uh, like a stump and I look behind me and off to the distance, I could see a cat. Mm-hmm. And I look and I'm, at first I'm like, Oh man, that's a cat. Like I've never, I've never seen one out here, you know? And I just, you know, just couldn't, couldn't get over it. Cause they're pretty, they're pretty elusive. Right. He was going to have so, Frank stay. So then I start walking a little more and I realize it's following me. Yeah. And then he's that, gonna have Frank's. Day. And that was 
I, I had the reality walking there. I was like, all right, this is getting serious now. And there's a weird, it gets back to that whole apex predator part mm-hmm. where when you don't feel like the apex predator anymore, which honestly us as humans, that's 99% of our existence every single day. Mm-hmm. And the only time you don't feel like an apex predator is like if a car comes rushing at you right. and you almost get hit by a car, you right. know, that's about the only time you don't feel like an apex predator. Right. But you're pretty much macking apex predator all fucking day long mm-hmm. in your whole existence. So you're not. In a situation like that, you're by, I was by myself. Yep. I had no one around. Yep. I was literally probably two days deep into the woods. Right. And I'm realizing that if this goes down, it's between the two of us. Yeah. You know, like I can't, you know, play dead. I can't. Right. I can't do any of that. This, this thing's going to fight me all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. And I remember that was the first time ever in the woods. And honestly, since then. I was legitimately scared. My hands started shaking. I went through this whole like cycle of emotions. And then I was like, all right, don't freak out. Just keep walking. Keep doing what you're doing. Make some noise. And maybe he he or she just won't have any interest in me. Because mm-hmm. I know probably the immediate thing is probably like, dude, what the fuck are you doing out here? You know, what, what are you doing? This is This is my place. You know. What? Why? What what do you Why don't doing? you go over that way and I'll make sure you go over that way and then we're good, you know. And and that's exactly what took place. But I just kept turning, kept looking. It'd be a little bit and it's so fucking quiet. There was a couple times where I looked, I was like, Oh, you know, it's it's cool, it's not there. And then I'd look and I'd be like, Fuck, he's still there. Mm-hmm. This went on for like an hour. Yeah. It was a long time. Mm-hmm. It felt like a day. Mm-hmm. And I'd just sit there and I'd stop and I'd look. I had you know, had protective measures in place. You know, I had my plan, which probably would have all went to shit if anything happened. Yeah. But, but that's the same way I would feel 10 times more though with a Bigfoot. Yeah. And that's what I hear when people like hear that they say like, it's just either a, the smell or the sound, yeah. just the noise, the ruckus, the yeah. scream, you know, it's, it's, Everyone says, you know, that's been out in the woods for a long time. And that's where I really trust, like, the real, like, bushmen and woodsmen out there, you know, that hear this stuff. And they're like, I've never heard anything like that. Right. And it's like, I get that. Like, you you get to a point where you walk in the woods a lot and you're like, yeah, no, that's a chipmunk. That's a squirrel. That's a bird. Right. That's, you know, a bear. That's this or that, you know. And then to hear something like that, I mean, honestly, I'd rather want that to happen than the ghost experience really yeah because i just feel like that would be like the pinnacle thing for me in the woods you know it'd be like the just the the grail the hole in one it's the hole in one i don't even have to see him just hear him but i i know this much if i heard if i was in a tent or if i especially in my hammock with my tarp over me yeah being that exposed and i heard a bunch of just like clunking around clunking 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 and just a big like you know i would leave (laughs) I would leave. I would okay, maybe, bye. yeah, I would maybe look around for tracks and yeah. kind of see, see around, but I would definitely have my exit strategy all set, all planned. I'd be packed up, ready to go. And I wouldn't even bring a lot. Like I would leave shit there and just be like, <laughs> I'll come back later and get it. I'd love to think I'd be all tough and hang out there. And if there was a few of us, I would probably, cause there's that for me, that strength in numbers deal. Right. But by myself out there, like, 
like Les Stroud went out there on Survivor Man one time and he's camping out and he was with a dude out there. Yeah. But, but he went out in one part alone and I'm just sitting there. I was like, dude, you're you're trying to find this and you're alone. Like, what are you going to do when this happens? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're all by yourself. You're going to pick up your camera and just be like, there he is. You know. Hey, guys. Yeah. And I'm not going to get into our whole story. That's a whole different deal. we got to save oh, that. Oh, we're for saving that for the episode. Yeah, because it's honestly... I think it's the truth. I mean, they say the truth is out there. Yeah. It's not our fault. We're awesome and we came up with it. Everybody, thanks for listening. Yes. Thanks for for letting us punish you through this one. And um, we will be doing Robert the Doll next. We will. Maybe. And then maybe Jeff the Doll. Maybe Sue the (laughs) Doll. (laughs) We'll do Annabelle. Annabelle. Yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you so much for listening. If yes. you can do us a solid favor, if you're on Apple Podcasts and you're listening, can you scroll down on your phone to the bottom of the page that you're listening to our podcasts on and give us five stars? Please. We would really, Turns really out appreciate that's the it. The only way Apple knows that. Well, we it's exist. not even that much. It's just you know, I'll be honest. We know you're out there, Apple listeners. We know exactly how many of you are out there. And it's we get analytics, and it's more than what the five star reviews are. So we would just uh, <laughs> come we on, would, guys, cost you zero dollars. We would appreciate it, but but again, I'll say it every single time. More than that, if you know somebody that is into this type of podcast, or if you know someone that's into history, yeah, or the darker side of history, yeah, no, exactly. This type of podcast, please, uh-huh. you know, please spread the word and have hey, Frank. What? Bird is the word. No, it's not. I'm going to have to have that as a sound effect. <laughs> just play it for like five minutes. And then we, we just can't. won't. We won't have a podcast anymore. Copywriting. No, whatever. So um, have a great day. Have a wonderful week. And as always, make good choices. Take care. 